0: The 13th century was a time of great change in Europe. The cities of Florence, Paris and Arras became thriving commercial centres. On the back of the disastrous reign of King John of England, the French crown had also grown significantly in strength. Into this world, we find the trouvères, poets and musicians who wrote and sang about the pains of love, on politics and of devotion to the Virgin Mary. Their songs, preserved in 20 song compendia called Chansonnier, but also found scattered throughout many early medieval manuscripts, are a rare window into medieval vernacular culture. With me to discuss this reverse are Megan Quinlan, a DFL student in musicology at Merton College, and Joe Mason, a DFL student also in musicology at Lincoln College. Thank you very much for joining me. Joe, perhaps you could start us off by just it's a small task, I know, describing a few of the things that were going on in Europe at the time that these songs were being written. What's the historical context? Sure.
1: Well, we date the Vers from the second half of the 12th century until about the end of the 13th century. And some of the events going on at this time, of course, we've got the fierce rivalry between the English crown, the Plantagenet dynasty, and the French crown, the Capetian dynasty. And as you mentioned in your introduction, in the 1220s and 1230s, there was a great loss of territory by the English and as a result of this, the French crown gained
0: power. Yeah, I think they, they gained Anjou. For That's instance, correct. Yes. Anjou, Maine. And, yeah. A huge quantity of, of land. A huge, a huge so, quantity so, of land. So France landing. is really gaining in strength. Absolutely.
1: And another another gain of territory for France around this time is the Languedoc.
0: Well, where is that exactly? Is that thinking of the, the map of France in sure. my head? Where well, we modern-day
1: France in the, in the 12th century was separated into roughly in half into the area of France which spoke northern French. And their word for yes was... So it was referred to as the Languedouille, and mm. the south of France, whose word for yes was Oc, so their territory was, was referred to as the Languedoc. Oh, I see, I see. And in the first few decades of the 13th century, the French crown crusaded the south of France, the Languedoc, in order to gain territory, supposedly on the grounds of counteracting heresy.
0: And the Trouvers come out of earlier tradition of, of troubadours, which was maybe the, the 11th or early 12th century, reading your notes. Megan, can you describe us a bit about maybe how the trouvres differ from the troubadours?
2: So, there's more variation, I think, of class in the trouvère tradition. In both traditions, the troubadours and trouvres act serving a patron. So, they find their livelihood through a patron for whom they sort of have to compete. So, there is a sense of competition. And I think a fair bit of. So, they were. Probably itinerant in the sense that when their patrons moved court, they would follow with them. But in the trouvère tradition, you also get musical activity among the bourgeoisie, especially later on in the 13th century, so in Artoise, in Arras.
0: So you, you get, for instance, Thibaut of Champagne, who is going on these crusades that Jo was talking yeah. to us about.
2: so Thibaut is one of the highest-ranking trouvères. He was the, the Count of Champagne, a very powerful figure, provided... Political leverage for Blanche de Castile, the mother of Saint Louis, Louis the Ninth. Blanche was uh, the regent of France between the death of her husband, Louis the Eighth, and Louis the Ninth's ascension to the or his his um, his maturity. So he, because uh, Louis the Ninth was crowned at the age of twelve, I think. So there were a few years in between where Blanche had to take power, and Thibault was uh, was her greatest supporter during this time because there were rebellions happening as well among uh, the French Baronage. When a regent takes power, there tends to be more political instability. So Thibault was a very powerful figure. He also later on became King of Navarre in the south of France, was not very well liked by the residents there apparently <laughs> <laughs> um, because he uh, he tended to use their resources to, <laughs> to bolster up his county of Champagne.
0: Which is much further, further north.
2: Yes, much further north. And in the, so the chansonniers normally place him towards the beginning because often they're categorised according to rank. So you'll start with songs by Thibaut de Champagne because he's the most sort of aristocratic trouvere and then they um, follow down the line.
0: Because we have this really quite large spectrum of class. You say there are these almost kind of merchantile class of musicians, poets who are seeking patrons and are earning their livelihood through their patrons but you also have... I
2: think, so we have evidence of this more in at the end of the 13th century, and I think there's also an aspect of aspiring to the aristocracy. We have a really interesting manuscript here at Oxford called Douse 308. Our supervisor is, is, is researching it at the moment, but it contains uh, narratives about jousts and feasts and all of these sort of very aristocratic activities, but it is probably made by the bourgeoisie and, and owned first by a, a bourgeois owner. And, and there's also, among the bourgeoisie, what's known as prix or competitions, so songwriting competitions. Particularly in Arras, you have the prix d'Arras, and I'm sure Joe can, <laughs> can say a little bit more, well, cause more about Well, because Arras is a, a great yeah. centre
0: of this song tradition. Lots of what we uh, find comes out of Arras. Mm.
2: Mm.
1: So Arras has been treated by some scholars as kind of the cradle of modern literature in a way there's this extraordinary literary culture in arras in the 13th century partly because i think the statistic is 25% of the men in arras were literate because of clerical training and then clerical training which these men did not take up in their subsequent jobs
0: so as in there were too many trained clerics, so too the many clerical... trained clerics for the clerical jobs
1: and one possible outlet for if you were a trained cleric but you couldn't get a job, you know, you couldn't get into a monastery or into the church, was to become a jongler who is a performer of chansons, a performer of, of other things as well, such as recounting stories, telling jokes, falling over, farting on demand, other
3: <laughs> such, all the activities.
0: Let's get a sense of the subject matter of these songs, because they're very varied, but there are certain tropes that the the writers of the text always go back to perhaps i mean joe you can start us off but we can we can go go back and forth so Mm. there's the um courtly love the pains of love is a big yes so that's kind
1: of the principal genre um these songs they typically open with the spring topos when i hear the birds of may singing i am moved to sing because love tells me to sing that's the kind of classic opening the other important aspects of this trope are it's love for a higher lady. She is unattainable. There are certain aspects of kind of feudal imagery in this relationship to the lady. So there's often the image of the poet-singer on his knees, hands clasped, head bowed before his lady in, a, in an attitude of homage to her. There are frequent images such as the dart of love, mm-hmm. the prison of love
2: separation of if I can no,
1: <laughs> please, saying, then,
2: yeah separation of of the heart from the lover's body so mm-hmm. so the heart is sort of taken out of the lover's chest and resides with the lady, but the trouvere poet uh, singer lover character doesn't really mind because he's sort of loyally devoted to the lady and it's, so it's this kind of paradox between um, suffering and the sweetness of love mm. it's like sort of getting caught up into this this circle this this vicious circle of of love, which was seen as a sickness then. So if you think of the, so Joe mentioned the, the dart of love topos, we see this on Valentine's Day still, right? Cupid is, of course um, shooting his arrow into somebody's heart. Um, but this had sort of more physiological associations in the 13th century. Some earlier theories of vision posit that when you see rather than light going into your eyes, your, your eyes themselves shoot out darts of light, which then make impressions on the objects around you and uh, and, and take that information back into your mind. And so these, these are shown often in manuscripts as being arrows. And the figure of love shoots arrows into the eyes. And then these arrows go into, sort of pass through the bodily humors into the heart. And the arrows are fiery arrows, arrows of light, like you would get in vision. And because they're fiery, when they go into the heart, they sort of set it aflame. Um, so there's this whole uh, aspect of physiology and temperature and heat. And that's why the lovers sighs, because they're fanning the fuels of this fire. <laughs> it's like they want more of it, but they, the more they get, the more they suffer.
0: I something to, to bring in here is that most of these songs were were written by and performed by and performed for men. Exactly. So
1: one of the other contradictions that's got the heart of the courtly love topos is that you're singing about love but your lady will never hear it mm-hmm. so there's always this unrequited aspect of course this unrequited aspect means that the tradition can be perpetuated because the song you can never, carry never singing it. about so, these mm. un- unrequited feelings mm.
2: yes it's always it's the desire that allows you to sing and if that desire were fulfilled you wouldn't necessarily need to sing anymore they <laughs> have <laughs> um, a job yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and the lady also is is she's always kind of the same lady. She has a clear face, Um, she's very beautiful, she's the most beautiful lady. So it's not, we don't really get the sense that they're singing to specific ladies, but to a kind of idealised, abstract lady who might be interpreted in many different ways.
1: And, And indeed there's quite interesting issues around gender here because certainly for troubadour poetry you find that The lady has many female characteristics, like her clear face. It sometimes mentions aspects of her body as well. And yet there's also the male side to her personality, which is this kind of dominating figure who you have to pay homage to. Mm. So there's an uneasy relationship between the gender.
2: Yeah, you could could almost say she's kind of like a third gender in a sense, because women at that time didn't have any political power, besides figures like Blanche de Castile, this was quite rare. Um, And so to treat a lady as your kind of feudal overlord, bow down to a lady and be dominated by her, because there really is this this dynamic of domination. The lady is is beautiful, but she's also cruel because she doesn't acknowledge you. And you're just sort of waiting for this, just this slight sense of acknowledgement from her, but it never comes.
0: So that's the major trope, I mm-hmm. guess. But there are, there are several, as a pastorelle, um, as you write about, which is, you know, a shepherdess and a knight. So
1: the pastorel is a fairly formulaic genre. It centres around one encounter, as you say, between a knight and a shepherdess. It normally starts with the line, the other day I rode out into the countryside. So we've immediately got this image of a knight riding out into the countryside where he encounters a shepherdess he amorously advances on the shepherdess shall we say <laughs> and presses her for kisses and more
4: <laughs>
1: then there are a range there is a range of responses sometimes the shepherdess acquiesces sometimes she refuses there there may be rape in these texts and there is also the figure of robin who comes he may come to rescue his shepherdess when she calls him he may come to rescue her and it's too late she may call for him, and he may not answer. Or she may be willingly in the arms of the night when Robin walks in
0: and, and finds them. Yeah, variations on, on the theme. Exactly. Mm. But also your speciality are these songs called um, Je Partie, uh which are, um, I mean, y- y- you tell us, they're, they're debate songs.
1: That's right. So Je Parti literally means divided game or game of choice, but we get the word Jeopardy from it. And in these songs... The first verse, a question is presented by one of the singers. And it's always a question of courtly love. So, is it better to...
0: Well, I think that we're about to hear you You sing one of these songs. Megan, you told me earlier what the, the central question of this uh, yes, song is.
2: Yes, so, uh, the question of this particular example is, is it better to sleep with one lady for all night, but not accomplish all of your desire, or... Is it better to sleep with a lady, and leave directly afterward? So you leave the you take the flower, but leave the fruit.
0: But this song is, is written as a dialogue debate between a man and a woman, who yes. are taking a, opposing sides.
1: Now, as normal for joute, we alternate the two singers alternate stanzas, each taking a side of the debate. Now, there are a few unusual things about this this jupati, oh, okay. One of which is that it's between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Most joute are between two men. Mm-hmm. The second unusual thing is that the man jumps in midway through one of the verses and doesn't allow the woman to finish.
2: Mm. Mm. So you really do get the sense that the debate is getting more heated and you can imagine well you can probably guess which voice takes which side (laughs) according (laughs) to sort of gender stereotypes Um, and in this case there is also sort of a sense that this dynamic is happening not just on the level of the content of the argument but also um, in the relationship between the singers. Because it's between a man and a woman, and the woman is asking, my friend. And amies is not just friend. It's also, it can be lover. It's a very, very intimate term. And um, in some of the manuscript versions of this, the lady always calls the the male voice amies, my my beloved, my friend. But the male voice calls the lady dame, which is a much more formal term, rather than amilleux. So you kind of get the sense that the, the female voice is asking, you know, is it better to... The whole argument is really, is, it, is affection better, uh, affection and time spent together better than just, you know, doing it and going? Um, it's one night stand. And since the male voice goes for the one night stand and the female voice uh, takes the other option, there, there is this effect produced uh, of, of the lady... Wanting the man to stay or or having a bit more affection for the man than the man does for the woman.
0: <laughs> that's an incredible description, but that's here. We're gonna we are cutting in about halfway through, I, I believe. Yeah. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: find your notes we have a pitchfork here, alas.
4: I mean poison
3: Jam hon knäviger i norr ju possuider som äste mer Mes Maison Chloé, si grand chalot, qu'on ne la peut désallumer.
4: Ami, or où est que je dis? Quand la bouche est liée, c'est paix la chose, qu'a que lui plaît, quand on est le feu
3: Je ne dis pas ainsi, mais qu'il n'y a plus de refaire. dont très amour, ça, son vie, qui parle loyal, que son d'être fait. Dame, pour Dieu, oh, écoutez. Li joues et les gays Aver aux mains,
0: Thank you very much. That was absolutely wonderful. Can we talk a bit about these the chansonniers themselves, these documents that we have these songs and others from? What, what do they look like? Are they um, vellum?
2: Mm, uh, parchment and vellum. Parchment and vellum. So very expensive material right it takes a number of sheep or cows to make a book and and the objects themselves are very luxurious and you can you can tell this especially looking at the margins you've got these huge huge unused spaces uh, of margins which sort of emphasizes its its decadence lots of gold leaf historiated initials so those big big initials that you you can imagine in medieval manuscripts and uh, and they have pictures of various trouvères, at the beginning of each uh, each section. So You've got pictures of knights and singers and so on.
0: And what does the musical notation itself look like? Because I guess it will be very different to what we might see if we you know, open a, a book today.
1: Sure. So some things are similar. We still have a stave. It's drawn in, in red. And there are at least four lines, mostly four lines, sometimes more. We also, as in modern notation, have a clef at the start of each line, normally a C clef, but this can also be an F clef. And then the notes themselves are 12th and 13th century French square notation, which bears some resemblance to the kind of neumes that one might see in Chant books that are
0: used in the Catholic Church today, for example. But so you can have just notes on their on their own, but they can be mm-hmm. combined together. You you told me earlier, and That's right. So
1: in in modern notation, we link together notes using all sorts of of means. Sometimes we use it to show rhythm. Sometimes we link notes together with slurs or ties to show that you join notes together. Principally in this music you join notes together to show that they belong to one syllable mm.
2: yeah and i think it's also important to note that the notation of this music is from a very different tradition than the music itself so the notation that the, that they're using is the notation of church music of chant and of motets uh, or yeah mostly of chant so you're kind of you're kind of trying to capture a tradition using a different language a different musical language, and so there are certain things that we we can't really recover all the time, for example, rhythm. Uh, we don't know this is a this used to be a massive debate, which nearly sort of stifled all study in this area because scholars were so angry at each other was was there rhythm in this music? And a few German scholars sort of made very elaborate theories of rhythm in in this music, um but others sort of very. Um, very strongly rejected this and we still don't know but um, I think nobody really cares very much anymore. (laughs) We kind of just we we accept the doubt and uh, and move on and try to we try to find out other aspects of this music.
0: So who was writing down these songs in the chansonnier? Were they sort of roughly contemporary when the songs were being written and sung? Were these books written all at once or were they compiled piece by piece?
1: well it's it's kind of a complicated story um the earliest chansonnier that we have is from the 1240s or 1250s mm-hmm. from eastern france quite a quite a way away from the center the geographical center of this tradition now the the earliest trouvères blondel de nel Chrétien de trois cassé Brûlé, de Chasselin de cussy mm-hmm. were writing at the end of the 12th century and the start of the 13th century so that's a time gap of 30 years. We then have chansonnier being produced pretty much in every decade up until the first decade of the 14th century. So from 1250 onwards, we have chansonnier from the 1260s, 1270s, 1280s, 1290s, and from the 1300s. Yeah. And these are mostly being produced in Artois, which is a region in northeastern France, near Lille, just south of Lille is Arras, which is the center of
2: artois and we imagine they would have been produced in ateliers um, so not not within the church, but,
1: uh, so but kind of scribal
2: workshops scribal workshops here, yeah. but there isn't very much evidence of these of the workshops themselves, so we we rely quite heavily actually on art historical evidence um, of the uh, illuminations and the historiated initials in the manuscripts
0: and who's paying for them though?
2: mm patrons.
0: So
1: w- one particular example is um, the Chansonnier du Roi. It's known as the Chansonnier of the King, probably copied uh, in the 1260s or 1270s in the Artois. Possibly, it's been suggested for Charles of Anjou, who was the younger brother of Louis IX, and he became King of Naples and, at one point, King of Jerusalem.
2: Mm. And, and these were... As I said before, these were very expensive objects, and they were used probably as status symbols um, by these, these these wealthy patrons. We don't really think they were sung from very often because they they don't bear much sign, very many signs of wear.
1: So we we might look, for example, in manuscripts for um, tears in pages or worn edges, particularly at the sides or dirt, mm. and that gives us a, a sign to how much the book might have been used. Mm-hmm. But these lots of these chansons are really quite clean yeah. and in good condition.
2: Very good condition. Which suggests that actually the the singers just knew the music. You know, that these these notes functioned more like memory cues. And maybe they were passed around uh, you know, when you had guests to to spark discussion, to, to spark the performance of music, but they were not necessarily sung from
0: They weren't like part books, say, no. they're a very different kind of document. Mm. I think it's time to talk about contrafacture, which, a word that I learned this morning, um, <laughs> where you get one song to the tune of another. It's like, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Exactly. This happens quite a lot, um, you tell me. The melodies travel very far and wide in Europe.
2: Yeah, so I have one example of a melody. It it, it began its life as a, a troubadour melody, Can Vela la lausette a and... Um, it's it's quite a well-known melody. In its time it was, we know that it was well known because it was disseminated in over 30, 40 manuscripts um, from all over uh, France, in England as well. At least the melody was disseminated there. But so the, the troubadour song itself has at least four different contrafacta. One of the contrafacts is the one, the je parti that we just sang. Um, and that's that's preserved in a source from Burgundy and one from Lorraine, so sort of northeastern France. But there's also a Latin debate, Contrafact, which is about something similar that these these two, the the, the male and female voices, so they they were arguing about about love, and and they're using imagery that has to do with the eye and the heart. So they're talking about the dart of love topos again, um, about being struck by... This fiery dart which travels into your heart and bursts and makes it burst into flames, well, the Latin contrafact is actually a debate between a heart, a personified <laughs> heart, and a personified eye um, over the dangers of love and so it's it's sort of turned this uh, rhetoric of about love into a rhetoric about lust and sin, the sins of the eye, which are written on the heart but there's another contrafact which is in the voice of um a female trouvere, and then there there are more, oh yes, then it sort of moves full circle, and in the early 14th century, or the late 13th century, we have a, we see the melody turning up in a mystery play on Saint Agnes, who also had sort of had a lot to do with the dangers of love, because she was betrothed to a a Roman soldier, uh, but of course she wanted to she wanted to be the bride of Christ right so um but they stripped stripped her naked and sent her to a brothel um and so this is sung at that part of the play it, there's actually a citation in this play's manuscript instead of, instead of citing the original troubadour song which from the which was from the south of france they cite the latin song which was from probably around paris um this play, the manuscript of this play, is from the south of France, so it's odd that they would cite a song from so far away, but we get the sense that over time, maybe the maybe the Troubadour song is, is forgotten, or maybe this Latin song is more sort of um, appropriate about this, this Latin song about the sin of lust for this particular play. So there's a huge sort of intertextual dialogue happening, um, and this is typical of a lot of contrafacta. Sometimes you get the first line repeated in a contrafact, the first line of the original song. So it's setting up an expectation that you're going to hear a particular song, but then the line, the text changes, it diverges from the original. So you get the sense that the the writers of these contrafacta want the audience to think, or they're sort of tricking the audience into thinking they're hearing this original song that everybody knows, that's really widely disseminated. But no, actually they're hearing something else.
0: I realise uh, that there's one thing that we haven't managed to talk about yet, um, which is the cult of the Virgin Mary. That these courtly love poems, they lend themselves well to small alteration mm. to, to very, very Christian messages where, where the woman is now the Virgin Mary.
2: Mm. Yeah, because you've got this idealised lady anyway, and so the most idealised lady of all would be Mary. So it's quite quite easy to, to transform these into Marian songs, quite orthodox Marian songs. And... Um, a number of Truvares themselves made their own Marian songs, possibly for their own devotion. But there are other figures, like Gautier de Coincy, who was a Benedictine prior, and he made it his mission, really, to take as many trouvere songs as he could and transform them into Marian songs um, in, various, in very clever ways, because you get this, with contrafacture, you get this sort of layering of meaning happening. And so often these texts are reacting against the, the true Ver ones, whereas the lady in the original text is, is cruel and so on and merciless. Of course, Mary is the intercessor. She is the most merciful lady of all. Um, and and Gautier has a huge dissemination of his manuscripts. He's one of the first authors to have ordered and compiled his manuscripts very meticulously. He wants it to be ordered in a very specific way. And there are over a hundred manuscripts with his his stories and his songs in them about the Virgin Mary.
0: So there was a link between the religious and the and the secular song styles at the time through these uh, these resettings of the tunes for religious purposes.
2: Absolutely, and I think actually, um, Contrafacta sort of blur the lines between sacred and secular all the time. Because some of these trouveres, even, so in Arras and so on, were associated with confraternities or were monks themselves and, um, and were writing so-called secular love songs about the dharma, the lady. And we know that figures like Gautier de Coincy, or there's another one named Adam de la Basse, they were very aware of these songs and they knew them. They knew them well enough to be able to construct other songs um, from them.
1: And one of the interesting things about these confraternities is that they were, on the whole, in general, they were dedicated to the Virgin Mary. So mm-hmm. the one that we know the most about, the Puy of Arras, was founded on this 11th century miracle where the Virgin Mary appeared to two jongleurs who were estranged, brought them together with the Bishop of Arras, gave them a miraculous candle. And from this legend, this confraternity of jongleurs, of poet-singers, was formed. So there are these analogues between the sacred and the secular all the time
4: mm.
0: we'll come back to talk more about Contrafacture later but um the the texts of many of these songs are by modern uh standards rather rather rude rather bawdy can you give us some sense of maybe why people wrote in wrote in this way well I think it's first important to stress that
1: tastes in bawdiness change so <laughs> We in the 21st century still have something of a hangover from the Victorian sensibility. It's been relatively widely discussed about why, why literary texts from this time are quite so rude. And one argument for it is that there's quite strict codification about what you are allowed to say and what you should say. And the flip side of that is that people sometimes want to let out what they're not allowed to say.
0: And these songs are the media when they can do it, is yeah,
1: what So, suggesting. For example, you might see in a medieval book, I'm thinking of a 14th century copy of the Roman de la Rose, very famous 13th century text, which during a diatribe against women, in the margin, the illuminator has drawn a picture of a nun in the arms of a monk. Mm-hmm. And in another page, a nun picking phalluses off a tree. <laughs> for example. This one has
2: made the rounds over <laughs> yeah, the internet. It's yeah. a very, fa- a very <laughs> famous
1: example. And the art historian Michael Camille has made the argument that this kind of margin and main body text relationship is sort of symbolic of the way medieval people might have thought. So in the main body of the text, you have the orthodox framework of how one should think. And in the margins, you have a kind of subversive, bawdy, rude aspect to medieval thought, And we see this in certain oppositions. So we have the normal church liturgy, the um, prescribed services of the church. And then we have occasional feasts, such as the Feast of Fools, which happened after Christmas, where a boy bishop was elected and a boy was bishop for the day. This is kind of medieval liturgy turned upside down. Mm -hmm. A a topsy-turvy view. A topsy-turvy view, Mm -hmm. view, so that people got it out of their
0: system Mm -hmm. and the status quo could remain. So you're suggesting that these vernacular songs, although we might perhaps at first pass see them as rather subversive, actually they have a, a role in preserving the Orthodox. Yes,
1: so um, one theory about troubadour poetry, because it, doesn't, it's, it sort of doesn't make sense why all of these knights might have been singing about desire for a lady who they couldn't have. You know, why, why waste the time on it? Well, scholars have argued that actually this desire and this singing keeps the knights busy so that they can't... It sort of keeps them in a position of subjugation so that they then can't challenge the overlord of the court. Mm. And in a way, these this kind of bawdiness does the same thing. Rather than it being a sign that everyone is being immoral and um, promiscuous, it could, in fact, be people
0: able to talk about it so they don't go and do it. Although you mentioned the um, songs about love keeping the knights busy and not thinking of political gain. There is an, an example of a contrafacture mm. um, that, that Meghan uh, mentioned in her notes in which a, a rather sharp political point is made by barons against the king.
2: Yeah, and I've actually found a few examples of these, you know, these contrafacture, these political contrafacture. In this particular instance, we have um, a contrafact which is based on um, a song, and it shares similar phrases. So in the Trouvère song, you have phrases like, I've been sweetly deceived. But in the political song, it says, I've been cruelly deceived. Um, and what happens in the political song is, instead of being addressed to a lady, or talking about a lady, the narrator here talks about Lady France. In the original song, you have all of these kind of the, the typical uh, ambiguity of a trouverer narrator's voice, which is saying at the same time that the lady is beautiful and sweet, but also that the lady is cruel, and really underneath, it's kind of masking a kind of hatred or a kind of anger. But this is externalized in the political song, and it's directed toward France and toward Louis IX in particular, Saint Louis, who was king at the time. Based on some of the references of what's happening, so they say that we've been uh, we've been judged by inquest. All of the barons are um, are astonished um, because they've lost their rights. What this is based on is a historical event towards the end of the... So that around around the 1260s, 70s, where um, a baron named Angaron de Cousy found some young people, apparently, trespassing on his lands. Now, this is preserved in, I think, six different chronicles, so there are different versions of it. Um, but basically, he he arrested these three young people, youths, it says, I think, and had them hanged just for trespassing on his in his forests. And a relative of the young people complained to, to St. Louis, who at this time had a great reputation for being the king of justice, you know, the, the just king, the good king. Um, and Louis had Angaran brought to a hearing. Um, and Angaran wanted to settle it by uh, judicial duel which was was quite common at the time was kind of a a tradition traditional way of settling justice so so um the idea was whoever uh had the truth in them would would win the duel because sort of God was on their side, um, but in this case, because the youths were uh, not of any aristocratic status, there was nobody who who could really defend them in that way. And so Louis said, "No, this is not fair. I'm going to sub- subject you to, to trial by inquest." And according to to French medieval French law, this wasn't really constitutional in this case because it would touch his his person or his status. Um, so, so Louis actually sort of circumvented traditional customary law in this case and forced Angoran to um, to submit to this trial. And Angoran ended up paying a huge fine, had to spend three years in the Holy Land, had to have a church built where prayers would be said for the three young people in perpetuity. I don't know, maybe they're still being said. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but the thing was that uh, Louis was breaking with convention here. And
0: um, And this song is written by the barons in defence of...
2: Well, we don't know exactly who wrote it, but probably a baronial voice, probably somebody who was sympathetic because the the, the other barons were with Ingrand at this trial and they were equally sort of amazed and confused. Um, But the thing is, the song doesn't directly criticise Louis because that would be dangerous. We know that they they didn't have any sort of... um, violent uprising, well, at least there's no there's no evidence of that. So it seems like the only way they could get back or protest was through music. The, but the song mentions the mendicants. So, that, so the song doesn't blame Louis. It's very careful to blame the, the mendicants instead. So the Dominican and Franciscan friars who were very close to Louis, who were advisors to him. Um, but also they, they, they name one among themselves, one of the nobility. Who, who is to blame. And that, um, I think, is Simon de Clermont, or Simon de Nel. Now, Simon, Simon of Nel was from Nel, um, and he was one of Louis' most trusted advisors. He took control of France when Louis went on the Sixth Crusade. And uh, it so happens that this song is taken from The original trouver song is by somebody named Blondel de Nell, who is probably from this same area. So, what I think is that uh, by using Blondel's song, you're kind of getting a, you're targeting music musically Simon of Nell because, and actually, I found that there might there might be a, um, a relation between the two.
0: uh, a genetic familial yes, Yes. that's
2: right Uh, it depends on who you think Blondel is because there's some question over his identity his historical identity but if he is two of the figures that scholars think he is then he would be related to Simon of Nell so they're using this song by Blondel to kind of, I don't know, target or um, at least provoke dialogue uh, or a kind of rich commentary on what's happening here
0: we have about five minutes left. Joe Mason, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the um, uh, reception of his songs through history. Do they influence later songwriters and poets? Another big question. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's, it's
1: <laughs> um, I mean, one thing to say is that medievalism has really captured the modern imagination, particularly in the 19th century. You know, we're in Oxford and we're surrounded by Victorian buildings inspired by the medieval Gothic. And in a way, the reception of courtly song is a kind of romantic nostalgia for that. One of the important effects of the songs of the Trouvères and the Troubadours is the trope of the love song. This was really established by the Troubadours, possibly with Arabic influence before that, and it's now the dominant genre of popular music. And love songs you can trace love songs right from the troubadours through the Ars Nova in the in the 14th century through chansons in the 15th century courtly court songs lute songs madrigals in the 16th century mm-hmm. then we get into love songs opera
0: 19th century leader, 20th century pop songs to finish i think we've heard a little bit about your work about Simon Denell Megan mm-hmm. but joe what are you working on at the moment well, at the moment, I'm also working on Contrafacture, in fact,
1: specifically related to debate songs, to De Je Partie, because it seems that early debate songs might have taken their melodies from love songs. The particular songs I'm working on at the moment, one is a debate song which debates whether it is better to be able to see and talk to your lover, but without kissing or touching her, or to kiss or touch her, but without being able to see or speak to her. Now, the song that shares a melody with this is a song devoted to the Virgin Mary. And in this song, Thibaut de Champagne, the King of Truvares, compares his love for women to his love for the Virgin Mary. And this is allegorized in an elaborate image of trees and fruit. So he says that his heart is an orchard, which is full of withered, uh, unripe fruit, Trees that will never bear fruit properly because it's not what God wants for him. Whereas Mary is the the sweetest tree who will give sweet fruit that will satisfy him forever through her son, Christ. And there are all sorts of interesting readings. If you read the songs together, you can see that on the one hand, this devotional song is trying to transform profane love into something more idealised. On the other hand, if you look at... The debate about whether you should sleep with without speaking to or speak to without sleeping with there's a kind of anxiety about male sexual prowess and impotence which ties in to all of this imagery about trees trees that won't flower
0: and mm-hmm. trees that only flower when you serve god well thank you very much both of you i feel we barely scratched the surface in our, in our 45 minutes yes yeah, just so so much to to take in and to learn Next week, we'll be talking about Oscar Wilde.